Now let's turn our attention to the Lord, shall we, and ask his blessing upon the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you because of who you are, not because of who we are. We recognize, Father, that we are frail creatures of the dust, weak in so many ways, and sinful, desperately in need of a Savior. We come to you because Jesus is that Savior, is our Savior. He, come, he came to do what we could never do for ourselves, and we pray, Father, that you would enable us to gain a glimpse into the heart of our Savior, and so be led into the occasion that Jesus established for the people of God, and that is the Lord's Supper. And so we might recognize in the elements that we are about to consume the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. We ask this thing, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Where, where was Jesus? Where was where was Jesus when multiple tornadoes tore through Kentucky and four other states on December 10 and 11, just a few weeks ago, and killed 92 people, 78 of them in, in Kentucky, destroyed essentially the town of Mayfield, Kentucky? Where, where was Jesus? Where was Jesus when Hurricane Ida, a Category 4 storm, made landfall on Louisiana's Gulf Coast on August 29, curiously the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, resulting in 32 deaths along the Gulf, course, uh, Gulf Coast, and then flooding from Ida eventually ended up killing 56 people before it was all said and done. Where, where was Jesus when that happened? Where was Jesus when a typhoon hit the Philippines on December 16 and displaced hundreds of thousands of people, killing more than 375, rendering hundreds of buildings and residences unsalvageable? Where, where was Jesus when that happened? Where was Jesus when torrential rain caused floods and landslides in China's Henan province on July 20th, killing more than 300 people? and destroying thousands of homes. Where was Jesus when the Cumbre Vieja volcano erupted on the Canary Island of La Palma on September 19 and continued to erupt until just a week or two ago, destroying more than 3,000 properties and displacing more than 7,000 people whose lives will never be the same? Where was Jesus? Where was Jesus on August 14 when a 7.2 magnitude earthquake struck Haiti, killing more than 2,200 people, destroying tens of thousands of homes, and exacerbating turmoil in a nation that was already reeling politically from the assassination of its president only a month before? Where was Jesus in all of those 2021 disasters. I can tell you where Jesus was. He was right there in the middle of it. Jesus was right there in the middle of every single one of those tragedies. And not only in the middle of those natural disasters, but also in the middle of many other human-caused disasters. 
spawned by political machinations of corrupt or feckless leaders and by ideologically driven movements and organizations and terrorists. 2021 has seen plenty of both natural and human-caused disasters. And if you want to know where Jesus Christ is, you go to the middle of those disasters. There you will find him. In the middle of the humanitarian crises, there is where you will find Jesus. And you will find him most often in the form of the church, the people of God, who are acting in mercy and compassion in the midst of those crises, but who are not likely to show up in the news cycles that you're watching on television, but they are there. And you will find him most assuredly in the person of his spirit, working in the midst of those tragedies, transforming lives that have been disrupted, ministering strength and encouragement to the displaced and the distressed, comforting and consoling those who are reeling with the loss of loved ones. You want to know where to find Jesus? You go to the places that most of us would never choose to go. You go to the people who are on the most difficult list to help, and there you will find Jesus. You know, we, we made much of the first responders on 9-11, and well should we have, who when thousands of people were rushing out of the World Trade Center were running in the other direction heading right into the teeth of the disaster, so many of them sacrificing themselves on behalf of others. Well, that's just exactly what Jesus does. He goes to the hard places. He goes to the hard people. He goes to the sufferers. He goes to the hardest sinners. Why? Because that's who he is. That's who he is. He is the man of sorrows. He is the man of sorrows. In our communion series on the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, we gain much insight into the nature and character of this servant of the Lord, as he's called in the Old Testament, who turns out to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is Isaiah 53, verse 3, which says, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus is the most titled person in human history. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the apostle and high priest of our profession. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the beloved son in whom the Father is well pleased. He is the bread of life. He is the bright and morning star. He is the brightness of his glory. He is the chief cornerstone and the chief shepherd. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the creator. Through him, all things were made. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. He is the holy one of God. And on and on and on we could go with title after title after title. But it is perhaps the title that most captures the heart of Jesus, the Man of Sorrows. There's only one text in the New Testament, by the way, that explicitly describes something about the heart of Jesus. Jesus himself says it in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He says, take my yoke 
upon you and learn from me. Listen, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. It is this disposition of Jesus Christ that led him to leave his glory behind and take upon himself our nature, our human nature, with all of its weaknesses, save our sin, and run like first responders into the chaos and the destruction of our broken world. It is this disposition of Jesus Christ who, when the leper says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean, that Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him and heals him which turns the Jewish law on its head, that if you touch the leper, the unclean leper, you become unclean. Well, Jesus touches the leper, and he doesn't become unclean. No, the leper becomes clean. It is this disposition that leads Jesus to sit with tax collectors and sinners, the ones the religious authorities believe should be shunned. Jesus, the one for whom the religious gave another title, friend of sinners, they called him, which was meant as a pejorative put-down, but it was instead an accurate portrayal of the heart of Jesus, who loves to be with the sufferers and with the sinners. It is this disposition of Jesus Christ that led him to weep for this broken world. For his friend Lazarus, when he died, the first time Lazarus died, for his beloved Jerusalem, spiritually lost as it was, having had the incarnate Son of God in its midst, and they missed him, and so Jesus wept for them. Dane Ortland put it this way when he said, time and again it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. Richard Sims, one of the great Puritan divines, put it this way, when Christ saw the people in misery, his bowels yearned within him. The works of grace and mercy in Christ, they come from his bowels first. Whosoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. He did it inwardly from his bowels. Richard Sims uses the term bowels. And the Puritans, when they did that, were merely echoing the biblical euphemism for the human heart, that central motivating center of the human person. And Jesus was the man of sorrows. That's who he is in his bowels in his heart. Jesus' sorrows started early. As Joseph and Mary were led to escape to Egypt because of the, the evil intentions of Herod who purposed to kill the babies, and kill them he did, hundreds of them, trying to do away with a baby who would be the king of kings. And then the sorrows piled one upon another, his, his struggles as a child in a poor carpenter's family, whose father had passed away in his prime. How his closest disciples failed to understand even the most basic of God's purposes in Messiah, even after three years of, of personal study with the master himself. How his personal closest friends grieved the loss of the beloved brother Lazarus, and how it grieved Jesus to see them. How his disciples deserted him when he was arrested 
how his mother had to witness his beating and his being paraded through the streets of Jerusalem along the Via Dolorosa like a criminal led to Golgotha and there murdered with the most painful and hideous deaths ever conceived by human beings. He was the man of sorrows. Not the happy-go-lucky sort for whom all the circumstances of life seem to fall into place. About whom the psalmist wrote in Psalm 16, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Maybe they have for you, but the lines did not fall for Jesus in pleasant places because he was the man of sorrows. And our text says that he was acquainted with grief. Grief attendant with a broken world, broken with sickness and death, broken with corruption and violence, broken with destructive relationships, broken with political manipulation, and broken with spiritual disintegration, broken with sinful rebellion against his holy father. And while we might gloss over so much of that as we are able to avoid or ignore it, Jesus could not and would not gloss over it. Every instance grieved his holy heart, his divine, tender spirit. And while we might grieve over the consequences of sin, which is what our broken world displays, he grieved over even more the sin itself. And it was grievous enough for him that he would give up his own life to reverse that curse. He would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would weep great tears and shed great drops of sweat as if it were blood in Gethsemane. As he gazed into the cup of the wrath of God, he was about to drink so you and I would never have to do it. This Jesus was, he is, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was despised, despised. The word in Hebrew is baza, which means to disdain or to hold in contempt. It's used twice in this passage. There's sort of bookends to verse 3. He was despised. He was despised. That's more than mere opposition, but an application of hatred. It means not just opposition to one's position and prerogatives, but an, an actual visceral disgust with Jesus, a, a snarling antagonism toward the servant of the Lord is behind that word. Abundant examples of that word are used in Scripture. Esau despised his birthright. Saul was despised as king by the worthless fellows in his kingdom. Michael, one of David's wives, despised David as he danced before the Lord. He was an embarrassment to her. And you can relate to the idea of being despised. Let's face it, the political left despises Donald Trump. The political right despises Joe Biden. You can hear the disgust and the disdain in our contemporary discourse, can you not? The very same disposition prevailed by many toward the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, whose character and disposition was nothing like either Trump or Biden, but whose heart was humble and lowly, 
who never once transgressed the holiness of God nor his law. He was despised. He was rejected. That means to leave or forsake. Men turned their backs on the servant of the Lord. Uh, the natural result of their disdain and hatred. Eventually, people, you see, get tired of outright expressed hatred and animosity, and, and then they just determined to put him in their rearview mirror and then destroy, break the rearview mirror. They are just determined not to take him seriously. They determine to ignore him. They pretend he has no authority over them. And if anyone should ever propose following the servant of the Lord, immediately the walls go up. The defenses are erected, and every psychological device is employed to avoid even the consideration of the incarnate Son of God. He was despised and rejected. He was revulsed. Yes, revulsed is a word. I looked it up. That means people held him in revulsion. The text says, as, as one from whom men hid their faces. He is held in such derision that people cannot bear to look at him. Certainly we might imagine that reaction during his crucifixion, how his sight was so hideous to be beyond the stomach of most people, except possibly the hardened Roman soldiers. But this refers to the common reaction during Jesus' earthly ministry. Verse 2, which we looked at the last time we were in this series, says this, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This indicates that there was nothing inherently attractive about Jesus, but revulsed takes it even further. The majority of humans who encountered Jesus especially once his teaching began to convict men of their sin. They did not only reject him, they couldn't even bear to look at him. They even hid themselves from them. Maybe, they said, if I don't look at him, I can pretend that he doesn't see me. Some of us have a revulsion to something. Mine is asparagus. Yours might be peas or broccoli, but for most people, they are revulsed by the mere thought of Jesus. Their stomachs sour even when they consider him. And then the servant of the Lord is devalued. The text says this, and we esteemed him not. Everything that we have described about the human reaction to the servant of the Lord is encompassed by his being devalued or undervalued. We used to smile when we heard George W. Bush speak of being misunderestimated. You can wrestle with whether that is a real world word some other time. But the essence is that on steroids with Jesus. The one who is the apple of the Father's eye, about whom the Father said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The one about whom the author of Hebrews said, He is the radiance of the glory of the invisible God and the exact representation of his nature, is dismissed as nothing more than a worm, barely human, hardly 
worth according value. The one with the greatest value in the entire universe is dismissed by the vast majority of humans as less than dust. The fundamental human response to this servant of the Lord, this Messiah Jesus, is one of devaluing, of demeaning his worth. If worship is the according of supreme worth of someone or something, this is the opposite. This is the rejection of any worth or value in someone. And so the natural human response to this Jesus, this man of sorrows, is that he has been despised and rejected and revulsed and devalued. How do you feel about this servant of the Lord? Don't pretend that you would have responded much differently if you were back there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, that somehow you would have recognized this Messiah, Jesus, as worthy of your worship. But no, we would have been most likely just as resistant and or oblivious to his greatness as these people were. And if you believe otherwise, if you really do delight in this Jesus, that you don't despise him, that you love him, and that you don't reject him, you instead embrace him, and that if you are not revulsed by him, but you find him and yourself attracted to the beauty of his holiness, that you don't devalue him, that you treasure him beyond any other human or any other being in the universe, and that he is the pinnacle of your value system and you worship the Lord, if that's the case, let me tell you something, dear friends, it's because God has been at work in you. He is the one who pierced the darkness of your own soul. He is the one who convinced you of sin and righteousness and judgment, as we have studied in John chapter 16. He is the one who made you alive from your spiritual deadness, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And not only do you worship him, you fall on your faces, figuratively or literally, and you bow in adoration and praise of him who is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And if you still despise him and you still reject him and you still hide your face from him and you still disesteem him, then I pray that even in this moment, the eyes of your heart will be enlightened by the Spirit of God. And you will turn from your wicked and unbelieving ways and cast yourself on the mercy of the Savior, the Savior who is gentle and lowly of heart, who is the man of sorrows and is acquainted with grief, who wants to meet you in your suffering, in your sin, in your distress, in your disappointments, in your dysfunctions, even he wants to meet you in your despair. Our Father and our God, we come to this table this morning because Jesus is the man of sorrows. He comes to live a life that we could never live, be abused, murdered, buried, but nevertheless has conquered death once for all. But we come, Father, recognizing that he did all of those things to rescue us in our brokenness, in our suffering, even in our despair. And so, Father, as we come to this table, we pray that you would minister in our hearts to help us see in these elements 
the suffering of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did so on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.